This is Nick Treadwell and you are listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. The room into which the three were ushered was the controller's study. His fortship will be down in a moment, the Gamma butler left them to themselves. Helmholtz laughed aloud. It's more like a caffeine solution party than a trial, he said, and let himself fall into the most luxurious of the pneumatic armchairs. Cheer up, Bernard, he added, catching sight of his friend's green, unhappy face. But Bernard would not be cheered. Without answering, without even looking at Elmholtz, he went and sat down on the most uncomfortable chair in the room, carefully chosen chosen in the obscure hope of somehow deprecating the wrath of the high powers. The savage, meanwhile, wandered restlessly round the room, peering with a vague, superficial inquisitiveness at the books on the shelves, at the, ra- at the soundtrack rolls and the reading machine bobbins in their numbered pigeonholes. On the table under the window, by a massive volume bound in limp black leather surrogate and stamped with a large golden with large golden tees, he picked it up and opened it. My Life and Work by Our Ford. The book had been published at Detroit by the Society for the Propagation of Fordian Knowledge. Idly he turned the pages, read a sentence here, a, fo- a, fo- a paragraph there, and had just come to the conclusion that the book didn't interest him when the door opened and the resident world controller for Western Europe walked briskly into the room. Mustafa Mond shook hands with all three of them, but it was to the savage that he addressed himself. So you don't much like civilization, Mr Savage, he said. The savage looked at him. He had been prepared to lie, to bluster, to remain sullenly unresponsive, but reassured by the good-humoured intelligence of the controller's face, he decided to tell the truth straightforwardly. No, he shook his head. Bernard started and looked horrified. What would the controller think to be labelled as the friend of a man who said that he didn't like civilization, said it openly, and, of all people, to the controller, it was terrible. But, John, he began. A look from Mustafa Mond reduced him to an abject silence. Of course, the savage went on to admit, there are some very nice things. All that music in the air, for instance. Sometimes a thousand twanging instruments will hum about my ears and sometimes voices. The savage's face lit up with a sudden pleasure. Have you read it too? he asked. I thought nobody knew about that book here in England. Almost nobody. I'm one of the very few. It's prohibited, you see. But as I make the laws here, I can also break them with impunity. Mr. Marx, he added, turning to Bernard, which I'm afraid you can't do. Bernard sank into a yet more hopeless misery. But why is it prohibited, asked the savage. In the excitement of meeting a man who had read Shakespeare, he had momentarily forgotten everything else. 
The controller shrugged his shoulders. Because it's old, that's the chief reason. We haven't any use for old things here. Even when they're beautiful, particularly when they're beautiful, beauty is attractive and we don't want people to be attracted by old things. We want them to like the new ones. But the new ones are stupid and horrible. Those plays where there's nothing but helicopters flying about and you feel the people kissing. He made a grimace. Goats and monkeys. Only in Othello's words could he find an adequate vehicle for his contempt and hatred. Nice tame animals, anyhow, the controller murmured parenthetically. Why don't you let them see Othello instead? I've told you, it's old. Besides, they could understand it. Yes, that was true. He remembered how Helmholtz had laughed at Romeo and Juliet. Well then, he said, after a pause, something new that's like Othello and that they could understand. That's what we've all been wanting to write, said Helmholtz, breaking the long silence. And it's what you never will write, said the controller, because if it were really like Othello, nobody could understand it, however new it might be. And if it were new, it couldn't possibly be like Othello. Why not? Yes, why not? Helmholtz repeated. He too was forgetting the unpleasant realities of the situation. Green with anxiety and apprehension, only Bernard remembered them. The others ignored him. Why not? Because our world is not the same as Othello's world. You can't make flivers without steel, and you can't make tragedies without social instability. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want. And they never, they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safer. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're played with no mothers or fathers. They've no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, they're Soma, which you go and chuck out the window in the name of liberty, Mr Savage. Liberty, he laughed, expecting Deltas to know what liberty is, and now expecting them to understand Othello, my good boy. The Savage was silent for a little. All the same... He insisted obstinately, Othello's good. Othello's better than those feelies. Of course it is, the controller agreed. But that's the price we have to pay for stability. You've got to choose between happiness and what people used to call high art. We've sacrificed the high art. We have the feelies and the scent organ instead. But they don't mean anything. They mean themselves. They mean a lot of agreeable sensations to the audience. But they're, they're, they're told by an idiot. The controller laughed. You're not being very polite to your friend, Mr Watson, one of our most distinguished emotional engineers. But he's right, said Helmholtz gloomily. 
because it is idiotic, writing when there's nothing to say. Precisely. But that requires the most enormous ingenuity. You're making flivers out of the absolute minimum of steel, works of art out of practically nothing but pure sensation. The savage shook his head. It all seems to me quite horrible. Of course it does. Actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. And of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. And being contented has none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand. I suppose not, said the savage after a silence. But need it be so quite need it be quite so bad as those twins? He passed his hand over his eyes as though he were trying to wipe away the remembered image of those long rows of identical midgets at the assembling tables, those queued up twins, twin herds at the entrance to the Brentford monorail station, those human maggots swarming round Linda's bed of death, the endless repeated face of his of his silence. He looked at his bandaged left hand and shuddered. Horrible. But how useful. I see you don't like our Bakanovsky groups, but I assure you, they're the foundation on which everything else is built. They're the gyroscope that st- stabilises the rocket plane of state on its unswerving course. The deep voice trillingly vibrated. The gesticulating hand implied all space and the onrush of the irresistible machine. Mustafa Mon's oratory was almost up to synthetic standards. I was wondering, said the savage, why you had them at all, seeing that you can get whatever you want out of those bottles. Why don't you make everybody an alpha double plus while you're about it? Mustafa Mon laughed. Because we have no wish to have our throats cut, he answered. We believe in happiness and stability. A society of alphas couldn't fail to be unstable and miserable. Imagine a factory staffed by alphas, that is to say by separate and unrelated individuals of good heredity and conditioned so as to be capable within limits of making a free choice and assuming responsibilities. Imagine it, he repeated. The savage tried to imagine it, not very successfully. It's an absurdity, an alpha decanted, Alpha-conditioned man would go mad if he had to do epsilon semi-moron work. Go mad or start smashing things up. Alphas can be completely socialised, but only on condition that you make them do alpha work. Only an epsilon can be expected to make epsilon sacrifices for the good reason that for him they aren't sacrifices. They're the line of least resistance. His conditioning has laid down rails along which he's got to run. He can't help himself. He's foredoomed. Even after decanting, he's still inside a bottle, an invisible bottle of infantile and embryonic fixations. Each one of us, of course, the controller meditatively continued, goes through life inside a bottle. But if it were to happen to alphas or bottles 
our bo- or our bottles are, relatively speaking, enormous. We should suffer acutely if we were confined in a narrow space. You cannot pour upper-caste champagne surrogate into lower-caste bottles. It's obvious theor- theoretically, but, it's, but, it's, but it has also been proved in actual practice. The result of the Cypress experiment was convincing. What was that? asked the savage. Mustafa Mon smiled. Well, you can call it an experiment in rebottling, if you like. It began in AF473. The controllers had the island of Cyprus cleared of all its existing inhabitants and recolonized with a spe- specifically prepared batch of 22,000 alphas. All agricultural and industrial equipment was handed over to them and they were left to manage their own affairs. The result exactly fulfilled all the theoretical predictions. The land wasn't properly worked. There were strikes in all the factories. The laws were set up, set, set at naught. Obey, orders disobeyed. All the, people, all the people detailed for a spell of low-grade work were perpetually intrigue, intriguing for high-grade jobs. And all the people with high-grade jobs were counter-intriguing at all costs to stay where they were. Within six years, they were having a first-class civil war. When 19 out of the 22,000 had been killed, the survivors unanimously petitioned the world controllers to resume the government of the island, which they did. And that was the end of the only society of alphas that the world has ever seen. The savage sighed profoundly. The optimum population, said Mustafa Mund, is modelled on the iceberg, eight-ninths below the waterline, one-ninth above. And they're happy below the waterline, happier than above it, happier than your friend here, for example, he pointed. In spite of that awful work, awful, they don't find it so. On the contrary, they like it. It's light, it's childlessly simple. No strain on the mind or the muscles. Seven and a half hours of mild, unexhausting labour and then the soma ration and, and games and unrestricted copulation and the feelies. What more can they ask for? True, he added. They might ask for shorter hours and of course we could give them shorter hours. Technically, it would be perfectly simple to reduce all lower caste working hours to three or four a day. But would they be any happier for that? No, they wouldn't. The experiment was tried more than a century and a half ago. The whole of Ireland was put on a four-hour day. What was the result? Unrest and large, a large increase in the consumption of soma. That was all. Those three and a half hours of extra leisure were so far from being a source of happiness that people felt constrained to take a holiday from them. The inventions office is stuffed with plans for labour-saving processes, thousands of them. Mustafa Mond made a lavish gesture. And why don't we put them into execution? For the sake of the lab- for the sake of the labourers, it would it wouldn't it would be sheer cruelty to afflict them with excessive leisure. It's the same with agriculture. We could synthesize every morsel of food if we wanted to, but we don't. We prefer to keep a third of the population on the land for their own sakes, because it takes longer to get food out of the land than get 
burnt out of a factory. Besides, we have our stability to think of. We don't want to change. Every change is a menace to stability. That's another reason why they're so cheery for, of applying new inventions. Every discovery in pure science is potentially subversive. Even science must sometimes be treated as a possible enemy. Yes, even science. Science? The savage frowned. He knew the word, but what it exactly signified he could not say. Shakespeare and the old men of the Pueblo had never mentioned science, and from Linda he had only gathered the vaguest hints. Science was something you made helicopters with, something that caused you to laugh at the corn dances, something that prevented you from being wrinkled and losing your teeth. He made a desperate effort to change the controller's meaning. Yes, Mustafa Mund was saying, that's another item in the cost of stability. It isn't only art that's incompatible with happiness, it's also science. Science is dangerous. We have to keep it most carefully chained and muzzled. What? said Helmholtz in astonishment. But we're always saying that science is everything. It's an hyperpedic platitude. Three times a week between 13 and 17, put in Bernard. And all the science propaganda we do at the college. Yes, but what sort of science, asked Mustafa Mund sarcastically. You've had no scientific training, so you can't judge. I was a pretty good physicist in my time. Too good. Good enough to realise that all our science is just a cookery book with an orthodox theory of cooking that nobody's allowed to question and a list of recipes that mustn't be added to except by special permission from the head cook. I'm the head cook now, but I was an inquisitive young scullion once. I started doing a bit of cooking on my own. Unorthodox cooking, illicit cooking, a bit of real science. In fact, he was silent. What happened, said Helmholtz Watson. The controller sighed. Very nearly what's going to happen to you young men. I was on the point of being sent to an island. The words galvanised Bernard into a violent and unseemly activity. Send me to an island? He jumped up, ran across the room and stood gesticulating in front of the controller. You can't send me. I haven't done anything. It was the others. I swear it was the others. He pointed accusingly at, at, to Helmholtz and the savage. Oh, please don't send me to Iceland. I promise I'll do what, what I ought to do. Give me another chance. Please give me another chance. The tears began to flow. I tell you, it's their fault, he sobbed. And not to Iceland. Oh, please, you, your fordship, please. And in the paroxysm of objection, he threw himself off on his knees before the controller. Mustafa Mond tried to make him get up, but Bernard persisted in his groveling. The stream of words poured out inexhaustibly. In the, end, in the end, the controller had to ring for his fourth secretary. Bring three men, he ordered, and take Mr. Marks into, into a bedroom. Give him a good soma vaporisation and then put him to bed and leave him. The fourth secretary went out and returned with three green, ununiformed twin footmen. Still shouting and sobbing, Bernard was carried out. 
One would think he was going to have his throat cut, said the controller, as the door closed. Whereas, if he had the smallest sense, he'd understand that his punishment is really a reward. He's being sent to an island. That's to say, he's being sent to a place where he'll meet the most interesting set of men and women to be found anywhere in the world. All the people who, for one reason or another, have got too self-consciously individual to fit into community life. All the people who aren't satisfied with orthodoxy, who've got independent ideas of their own. Everyone, in a word, who's anyone. I almost envy you, Mr Watson. Elmholtz laughed. Then why aren't you on an island yourself? Because, finally, I preferred this, the controller answered. I was given this choice to be sent to an island where I could have got on with my pure science or to be taken on to the controller's council with the prospect of succeeding in due course to an actual controllership. I chose this and let the science go. After a little silence, sometimes, he added, I rather regret the science. Happiness is a hard master, particularly other people's happiness. A much harder master, if one isn't conditioned to accept it unquestionably, than truth. He sighed, fell silent again, then continued in a brisker tone. Well, duty's duty. One can't consult one, one's own preferences. I'm interested in truth. I like science. But truth's a menace. Science is a public danger. As dangerous as it's been beneficent. It has given us the stablest equilibrium in history. China's was hopelessly insecure by comparison. Even the primitive matriarchies weren't steadier than we are. Thanks, I repeat, to science. But we can't allow science to undo its own good work. That's why we so carefully limit the scope of its researches. That's why I almost got sent to an island. We don't allow it to deal with any but the most immediate problems of the moment. All other inquiries are most sedulously discouraged. It's curious, he went on after a little pause, to read what people in the time of our Ford used to write about scientific progress. They seem to have imagined that it could be allowed to go on indefinitely, regardless of everything else. Knowledge was the highest good, truth the supreme value, all the rest was secondary and subordinate. True, ideas were beginning to change even then. Our Ford himself did a great deal to shift the emphasis from truth and beauty to comfort and happiness. Mass production demanded the shift. Universal happiness keeps the wheels steady, steadily turning. Truth and beauty can't. And, of course, whenever the mass, masses seized political power, then it was happiness rather than truth and beauty that mattered. Still, in spite of everything, unrestricted scientific research was still permitted. People still went on talking about truth and beauty as though they were the sovereign goods, right up to the time of the Nine Years' War. That made them change their tune, all right. What's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when anthrax bombs are popping all round you. That was when science first began to be controlled after the nine years' war. People 
were ready to have even their appetites controlled then, anything for a quiet life. We've gone on controlling ever since. It hasn't been very good for truth, of course, but it's been very good for happiness. One can't have something for nothing. Happiness has got to be paid for. You're paying for it, Mr Watson. Paying because you happen to be too much interested in beauty. I was too much interested in truth. I paid too. But you didn't go to an island, said the savage, breaking a long silence. The controller smiled. That's how I paid, by choosing to serve happiness. Other people's, not mine. It's lucky, he added after a pause, that there are such a lot of islands in the world. I don't know what we should do without them. Put you all in the in the lethal chamber, I suppose. By the way, Mr Watson, would you like a tropical climate? The, the Marquestas, for example, or Samoa, or something rather more bracing? Helmholtz rose from his pneumatic chair. I should like a thoroughly bad climate, he answered. I believe one would write better if the climate were bad, if there were a lot of wind and storms, for example. The controller nodded his approbation. I like your spirit, Mr Watson. I like it very much indeed, as much as I officially disapprove of it, he smiled. What about the Falkland Islands? Yes, I think that will do, Helmholtz answered. And now, if you don't mind, I'll go and see how poor Bernard's getting on. <laughs>